Hello everybody and welcome back to How to Stan. This week we're going to take a break from the theme of the past few episodes because I have a new interview I'd like to present to you all. I got to talk this past week with Zoe Fraud Blinar, who is one of the authors of a book called Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are. It's a really great book that dives into the sociology and history of fandom culture, going back from the very early days when this was first studied by scholars. And so it really encompasses a lot of the themes that I like to talk about on the show, so expect the themes that we talk about in this conversation to come up a lot in future episodes. This book is a very helpful reference for me and for putting what I talk about on this show into context. So really, really good conversation. Hope you enjoy listening. Here is my talk with Zoe. So super fandom came actually out of a, a completely unrelated topic. Uh, in my other life, I actually run a, a toy company. It's a kind of an indie artsy toy company called Squishable. And we, uh, we sell stuffed animals and we have a lot of very, very intense fans who we adore and we love. But very, very early on, we started seeing some unusual behavior amongst our fans uh, back in their early proto stages of Facebook. And they were doing all kinds of activities for each other, like answering questions for each other or helping each other through breakups or trading products that were sold out or, you know, making content pictures and fan fiction about our products, uh, you know, and and us, um, which was a bit of a shock. We started seeing this happening and we were just like, what is going on? You know, where is this stuff coming from? And and started researching up on it and, and learning about it. And then we started testing out some of our theories on our fans uh, and, and interacting with them and searching ways to try to encourage this kind of um, sort of uh, loving fan behavior. And uh, next thing you know, you know, we, we built up this entire set of uh, instructions and and, um, methodologies to interact properly with a community. And it turns out that uh, a lot of companies, a lot of brands and and franchises and and fan objects, that's the academic term for it, just don't really understand how to do this. They don't really appreciate the value of their fan communities. They don't understand what's in it for them, (laughs) really. It's kind of a tendency to... uh, to ghettoize your fans kind of off to the margins. You got your consumers who are the real folks that you wanna you wanna pay attention to, and then kind of off in the corner over there somewhere, you've got you've got your fans kind of lurking in the shadows. But of course that's that's not really what it's like at all. There's huge crossover between the two groups and in some way the fans are even more important than the people who are who are just willing to buy something from you. So it's 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 been an interesting trip, but the foundation of the book came from this this core realization that just you know, people don't know how to interact with their fans. Do you think that has gotten any better over time? The relationship between how the people behind the advertising campaigns and stuff approach their fans. I'm thinking of examples from the book, like with the, there was like the Ikea super fan who had a whole legal drama ensued because of that website dedicated to Ikea. <laughs> like, like those kind of moments, like, do you feel like that's changing how, um, companies respond to extra enthusiasm? (laughs) You know, it would be really nice to think so, wouldn't it? Certainly, I think there's more appreciation for fans now. I think that people are, are finally starting to understand that that fan activity while sometimes it can be alarming (laughs) and Mm -hmm. even a little frightening to have so much uh, brand activity going on that's 
that's uncontrollable, that's not con- specifically controlled and created by yourself. While yes, it's it's true that can be a little frightening, but but the net result is almost always positive, and especially activity that that really you know if you stop and think about it, the only thing that's being given up is that control, and there's so much more that's actually being gained in terms of of people forming happy memories with the fan object, uh, people bringing in their friends. You got some good evangelization going on there. People spreading the word, people incorporating the fan object into their lives. I, I do feel like there's there's a lot more understanding now about the value of those activities than maybe there used to be. Having said that, you know, we still hear situations where, where uh, celebrities, where media owners, brands, um, people who run different activities, obviously, still, you know, have knee-jerk reactions against fan activity sometimes rightly so right not all fan activity is positive their fans can be horrible but but, you know without even really considering whether or not it's okay we still hear about automatic lawsuits we still hear about you know automatic cease and desists and and you know people getting very angry uh, just because they can't control something without actually thinking about the value it provides so you know it, it is better So in Super Fandom, the book, you talk about how fandoms kind of have come in waves. Fandom is utopia, and then there was fandom is social recreation, and then now we're kind of in like third wave. Fandom is identity or self-expression. Could you kind of just summarize what you mean by that? So yeah, this is all very kind of dense academic stuff, and it's it's actually a lot of fun to remember that they are serious academic folks in glasses and beards sitting around actually talking about this stuff, uh, you know, and getting yeah. PhDs in it. And, and uh, you can, mm-hmm. you can actually get a, a degree in say Buffy studies. You know, that's, that's a real thing yeah. that you can get a PhD in. So um, it's, it's fun to remember that this is actually a, a serious academic uh, a topic, but yes, people have been studying fandom uh, you know, seriously, in a, in a serious academic way for, for a while, probably about 60, 70 years now, uh, 80 years now, the phenomenon of fandom, obviously, itself is, is ancient. I mean, it's, as long as there is, is religion, uh, you know, there's fandom in a culture, and, and probably even before that, as long as there's an alpha in the pack somewhere, <laughs> there's going to be fandom. Mm-hmm. But the, the kind of modern concept of fandom is forming around some kind of piece of media or a brand or a human brand, uh, you know, just to say a celebrity. That probably stems from the Victorian period, uh, 1870s, 80s, and 90s. We're talking, you know, kind of industrial revolution stuff. And so it, it took probably about 50 years after that for people to start studying it. So back in the 1950s or 60s, a bunch of academics got together and they said, wow, people are, people are acting in these very unusual ways. It looks like they've been doing so for long enough that we're allowed to study it now and, and not get looked at weird. And, and they started looking at uh, some of the fandoms of their day, you know, dance fandoms and Beatlemania and, and things like that. Comic fandom, that was a big one back then. And, and they came up with this idea of fandom is utopia, which is which is what we call first wave fandom. It's, it's this idea that, all right, what is this stuff? Why are people asking uh, acting like this? And what they decided was, all right, this is what we think. We think that fandom is a safe space for people who maybe don't fit in in regular society. If you have trouble maybe interacting uh, with the mainstream, maybe they don't appeal to you, maybe they don't interest you, maybe you feel left out or offended by, by the mainstream, then you have this opportunity to create your own subculture 
where you can be creative, you can be yourself, you can express the values that matter to you away from kind of the world that doesn't understand you. You actually see this in a lot of fandoms, specifically from the, the 50s and 60s, uh, Star Trek, of course, being the classic utopian fandom. Everyone talks so much about, about the utopian ideals of, of Star Trek. But many fandoms from that period fall into the same. You know, you have Renaissance festivals and these creative fandoms that ended up feeding into the hippie movements and, and things like that. So yeah, that was what we, what we call first wave fandom now. It turns out that fandom is not utopia. Yeah. Fandoms can be mean, fans can be horrible people. We're all just human. Uh, after about 20 years, the academics realized that, that fandom and utopia does not tell the whole story. Obviously, there are aspects of it, since we can think of examples, but, but it certainly doesn't tell the whole story. And they came up with a second idea. Fandom is a societal recreation. And the idea for this is that, yes, all right, fandom is a, a safe space away from mainstream society, but the idea of fandom is to recreate society away from the mainstream world where you can be on top. If you don't fit in in mainstream society, but you still want to be in charge, then you create a subculture where now uh, you join this group that prizes the things you are good at. You can't run a mile in gym class and people make fun of you for not being able to do a pull-up or whatever. You join chess club. And now you get to be the person who's making fun of someone who, who doesn't know how to move a knight correctly, for example. And maybe in this new world, you get to bully other people who, who aren't as good as you are. Maybe you have a chance to date that group's uh, equivalent of a cheerleader. You get to be the one on top. It's a little bit more subtle, right? A little more Machiavellian, this idea that, that you're trying to recreate a version of society where you have a chance of being in charge. Mm -hmm. That's not true either. It's all right. There, there are obviously lots and lots of examples where it is true, uh, where, where people have created very complex fandoms where the whole point is to have a hierarchy where people can full rank on each other. This happens a lot in gaming fandoms, for example. The whole point is to be nasty to the people who aren't as good as you, while at the same time, there may still be some utopian aspects of helping out people who aren't as good as you. So, you know, you can kind of mix and match these two, but neither really tells the full story. And that's because. Both of these explanations rely very, very heavily on fans being outsiders and the idea that fans are people who have been discarded by society or maybe feel like they don't fit in society, who uh, have trouble with mainstream society for whatever reason. That's not really the case, uh, or at least maybe it was at the time. Uh, we're up to third wave fandom now. It says that, yes, all right, sometimes we have utopianism, sometimes we have societal recreation. The vast majority of fans, though, who you might talk to don't necessarily feel like outsiders. They don't necessarily feel like they're rebelling against anything. Or if they are rebelling, you know, they're, they're probably rebelling against some things and they're being happy with being in the mainstream and other things. We're all rebelling in some ways, right? And we're all happy with being in the mainstream in other ways. So it's, it's just much harder to, to pinpoint someone's social class, someone's social status now based on if they happen to be in a fandom or not. Right? The time has passed when we can say, you're a nerd if you're a comics fandom, done. Up to and including because you're, you know, into comics and you just like them. These days when we think about why people become fans, obviously there's a billion reasons, but third wave fandom means that people use fandom to tell the world who they are and to tell themselves who they are, to try on different identities, to 
experience different aspects of ourselves that we might not be able to access otherwise, to try out being sporty or romantic or hardcore or gregarious. The term for this is identity leisure, right? We're trying on different identities. Uh, and and it's, it's, we all go through different periods of identity leisure at different times in our lives, often during periods of upheaval, you know, like puberty, big period of identity leisure there. But, you know, really, anytime you move somewhere new, every time you hit a new life stage, make new friends, identity leisure is, is a big part of all of us. And then fandom really helps with all of that. I thought of it more as like fandom waves had been defined differently because of learning more about fandoms and changing the definition, but it sounds more like kind of was just adding on and realizing like there was a lot more like nuanced in the original view of it. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of describing it. You know, it's as, as our understanding of fan motivations have become more nuanced and also as fandom becomes less stigmatized, people are more willing to talk about why they have, in fact, become fans for a long time. That was that was a very difficult thing to get people to do. Of course, now people are more open about it, so we have more information. Yeah, one of my that kind of answered one of my other questions. I was going to actually ask about Comic Con being the main example that comes to mind. Like, you would think that some fandoms, based on like old theories, would fall apart if they were no longer like a niche interest. Like, they wouldn't want to be mainstream, but comics are still so popular. So that kind of just gets rid of that old theory. If well, it's interesting. Both comics and gaming fandom um, are a very interesting study in in the the correlation between social status and public acceptability. These mm -hmm. two are, are almost kind of, um, it's almost too perfect of an example. These are two fandoms that for a very long time, along with science fiction fandoms that were very heavily stigmatized. I mean, I, I grew up in the, in the 80s and 90s. And let me tell you, you know, if, if you were going to take someone on a date and you went to a superhero movie, I mean, that was it. Like, it was going to be all over school by next Monday. Like, that's it. Your relationship was probably over. So, and then, of course, you know, now that's probably the best place you could take someone on a date. It's great. Let's go see the Avengers. So there's been this huge shift in the social acceptability of these two fandoms in particular. And that's tied to a whole bunch of different things. But one of the reasons why these two fandoms have, have experienced this huge skyrocketing uh, in status, it's actually related to the tech industry. If you think about the time period before 1995 or six, if you were a techie, if you were maybe a coder or, or a hardware person, your social status was pretty, pretty low, right? I mean, if you think about the, mm -hmm. think about the stereotype of the, the nerdy techie, uh, you know, you're probably thinking some guy with like his hair parted in the middle and his pants pulled up to his, you know, armpits and a pocket protector and, and kind of a, a rumpled collared shirt and big teeth. Right, a very specific. Yeah, thing. yeah. You know, you can, you can actually still buy costumes, nerd costumes, quote, quote, which is actually related to a stereotype of, of being um, a government scientist from the 1970s. So it's, it's actually a, a look that's left over from the idea of being being kind of a, a governmental worker. But, uh, you know, up until probably about 94, if you were a techie, whether or not you happened to visually fit the stereotype, your, your social status wasn't so hot. You, you probably had an office somewhere in the basement of whatever company you work for. It's probably in an old bomb shelter. 
move around large pieces of old furniture. You know, it really reflected kind of the social status of your job. Most companies needed a bunch of techies, but they weren't really central to the work that anyone did. You know, not like the important people on the upper on the upper floor is maybe the financial analysts or the HR folks or whatever. And then all of a sudden, in, in 95, 96, we started getting the first tech bubble. We had this huge influx of high-paying, white-collar tech jobs. And within, you know, maybe 24 months or so, being a techie went from being this kind of embarrassing sort of gremlin under the floor to being a very highly sought-after, lucrative position, uh, which could command almost any, any uh, uh you know, salary they could possibly want. And they were the people who were founding the companies. They were suddenly worth billions of dollars. They were making companies where the tech was the company. You know, there, there were no upper floor people. They were the upper floor people. They suddenly had a shot of becoming the CEO. This had never happened before. Someone with a tech background being a CEO. It immediately became a highly desirable career path uh, or alternatively a highly desirable mate or someone that you would want to be with. And just like that, all of the, the traditional hobbies and pastimes that went along with the tech sector, two of which happened to be comics and gaming, also experienced this huge skyrocketing and acceptability. Uh, and the general you know, thought being, well, if rich people are into it, I guess it's okay. You know, if you think about it, that's true for many fandoms. We're all okay with Shakespeare fandoms and fandoms around opera. In fact, we don't even call them fandoms. You're an opera aficionado, right? You're not a you're not an opera fan. These are all, of course, the same the same phenomenon we're talking about here. But when something takes an expensive education to to know about or or is a hallmark of an upper echelon of society then the fact that it's a fandom doesn't matter anymore because it's, it's socially acceptable. People who are classy like it, therefore it must be all right. And along with Shakespeare and uh, opera, all of a sudden we now get to add comics and, and gaming because we have someone who has just become part of the upper echelon of society has said it's okay. Uh, and within a couple of short years, all of a sudden there was this huge societal shift in status. And it's very interesting to note that the fandoms that don't traditionally have uh, a base within the tech sector did not necessarily get that same skyrocketing of status. They, they certainly benefited from the internet. Uh, we definitely have situations where the fact that more people can find these fandoms, where people can participate anonymously without letting anyone know they're participating, certainly helped. But they don't necessarily still have that shift in status that we saw in these two particular ones. You mentioned like the gaming community and how that's become more mainstream. So I'm I'm curious what you think about how how would you distinguish your average like gamer or reader or uh, listener, whatever it is, from like an actual fan. In the book, we use the phrase "fandom is a verb," which is to say, if you're just you know really someone who likes a product, whether that's detergent for your laundry or music from a band, you really like it and you use only that detergent, you listen to only that band and you do it every day. You know, I listen to this band from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep. I do five loads of laundry every day with this detergent. That's great, but you're still just a very, very loyal consumer. You're using that product the way it was meant to be used. You're using the detergent to wash clothes. You're using the music to listen to. The second that you start doing activities 
He said fandom is a verb. The second you actually start to act on behalf of that fan object, we start going in the direction of being a fan. And there are actually a number of different kinds of activities that you might do in order to act in a fan-like way. They're, they're called the fan-like activities, in fact. So the fan-like activities that someone can do to act like a fan, to uh, behave like a fan, and make collections, that's called performative consumption, if you want to break out that phrase at your next cocktail party, performative consumption, making, making collections of things. Making collections, if you're collecting someone else's fan fiction, yes, if you're writing it yourself, that's content production. You are actually uh, creating items in tribute to that fan object, and it's another very, very strong fan-like activity, absolutely. You could also evangelize for that fan-like activity, try to get other people to become a fan of it, socialize about that fan-like activity, talk to other people who are also fans of it. You could create rituals and traditions around that fan-like activity. When something's tradition, you know, once you've done it more than a couple weeks, it just kind of becomes part of people's lives. You can engage in impersonation, which is to say using your body as a canvas to show off your, your tribal affiliations, right? Through, through the logos that you show, the makeup that you wear, the, the way you do your hair. Of course, you could go full cosplay. That's impersonation, obviously. You know, there, there's no reason to go the full Elvis in order to show your affiliations. Just having a, a Nike symbol on your shirt, you're engaging in impersonation, you're using your body as a way to show off your brand affiliations. So like, if you just like listen to a band every day, you're a consumer. And then if you're wearing the band's merch and talking to your friends about the band, that's like level. That sounds about right. Yeah. As soon as you start acting in ways that are ancillary to that primary consumption experience, as soon as you start adding value to the brand in a way that has nothing to do necessarily with what's in your wallet, as soon as you start on behalf of it, trying to make it worth more, trying to save the way you felt around it, as soon as you act, fandom is a verb, as soon as you act on behalf of it in a way that has nothing to do with that prime method of interactivity that, that was originally built in, you become a fan. More of my interview with Zoe fraud Blenar after this commercial break. Are there particular fandoms that are, they seem more prone to like dividing themselves up or like sub-sub fandoms, like categories or hierarchies, more of a fan than the other, how that is like, has caused fan divides over time? I know this is like a super broad question. If there are certain ways that uh, people who study this stuff talk about fans that have those divisions or hierarchies or like how that process actually happens. One of the effects of third wave fandom is that fandoms do love to divide and divide and divide. If the whole purpose of fandom to be able to feel like an individual while at the same time feeling like you're part of a group, which is kind of the basic conflict in, in modern life, right? Then mm -hmm. You can't help but subdivide over and over and over again as people look to, to define their identity more and more and more, right? Anytime a fandom gets big enough, you lose your sense of identity because now everyone else has that exact same identity. It becomes important to then schism so that you can retain having, having a unique identity. And of course, the bigger the fandom is, the more people have to specialize within that fandom to retain a sense of identity uh, within that fandom. And, and that's just natural and, and part of part of choices that third-way fandom press on us. At the same time, having a hierarchy within a fandom isn't necessarily a bad thing. 
And having a hierarchy is also a little bit different than having lots of different flavors of fandom, having a schism within the fandom. Schisming fandoms, ugh, it's what happens. Uh, whereas having hierarchy within the fandom, having uh, big name fans who are kind of high status, they have a lot of cultural and, and social capital. And then we have kind of the peripheral group around them of fans who have much lower social capital. Uh, and they're not really as hardcore fans, but they enjoy dropping in now and then. It's natural, and to be honest, it's it's healthy for a fandom, right? Every fandom needs to be able to see what the perfect fan looks like so that you have a way to, to aim for that. That's what motivates people to keep doing fan-like activities. It's what keeps people engaged. And it's also what keeps people interested in, in the fandom, right? You need something to work for. So to be honest, a, a good, healthy fandom will always have some way of measuring yourself against what what other fans are doing at any given time and, and how you stack up, whether that's an official way, like some kind of a leaderboard or scoreboard, slightly messier, you know, like just having a, an internet forum where people can post their fan art and, and you can see who's the best. Or even, you know, something as silly as looking at the comment threads in, in someone's um, Instagram posts and you, you start noticing that, you know, these couple of people show up again and again and again. Being able to see that they're high status fans is actually, is actually a positive. So it sounds like fandoms kind of operate like families do or like some sort of um, any organization, like it is constantly changing and like it's not a bad thing, it has to evolve. <laughs> Yes, I mean, fandom has, or really any subculture, I suppose, has two states. They are either dynamically changing or they are dead. <laughs> so it's it's much better yeah. for a fandom to be in a state of upheaval, which is to say a situation where, where the fans are engaged and maybe angry at each other, true, but at least they're, they're showing up than, than having a fandom where, you know, no one cares, where people are apathetic, where it doesn't matter enough to people to bother fighting. Uh, I always tell when fandoms are going through big political upheavals and, and everyone's really angry at each other and you got folks trolling and <laughs> I know it feels awful, but actually this is fantastic. It's, it's wonderful that enough people care enough about this topic that they're bothering to get into fights. Does it seem like with the internet and everything nowadays that fans can like, they're less likely to like die out because they can keep the conversation going about? The internet, probably the biggest effect it's had is that it's lowered the barrier to entry for finding fellow fans. Fandom is inherently social. There, There is no such thing as a solitary fan, not for long. You may think that you are a solitary fan, a secret fan, but there's actually very, very little evidence that, that such a thing ever exists. If someone thinks they're actually a secret fan, what they really mean is that they're doing fan-like activities in secret. <laughs> they're, they're being social with other people just away from their mainstream friend group, and they're, they're socializing with this other friend group that they haven't told anyone about. Because mm -hmm. fandom is inherently social, prior to the internet, it was often very hard to find other people to be social with, right? If, if no one else in your hometown was a fan of the same thing as you, or and you couldn't convert them, after a while, you're, you probably just gave up and get held kind of as a secret thing that you loved in the back of your head. But uh, you certainly couldn't do any really hardcore, you know, high-level fan-like activities without without being able to do them together. With the internet, that's, of course, not the case. It's It's... If, if there is at least one other fan of the thing that you like somewhere in the world, you can connect with them uh, and you can find a place to do so and a platform to talk about it. And next thing you know, you're doing family activities with some guy in Bulgaria. So this has been huge. Uh, it, it means that a lot of these fandoms that might have just 
died out beforehand because of, of lack of geographic proximity now no longer have that situation. It also means that the size of a group, the size that a group needed to be in order to be viable has gone way down. It used to be that in order for a group to, to live, to breathe, uh, it had to be reasonably big because not everyone would be able to get there all the time. Uh, and it took a lot of energy to do any activity, right? But of course, now uh, you can have a group of two and be extremely active together. You don't have to have that many people as long as you're really dedicated. You can still log in from wherever you are. You can still make it part of your life. You can still incorporate rituals and traditions. So that's both key. The other thing that the internet has allowed is, I believe I mentioned it a little while ago, this ability to, to operate in secret uh, without stigma. The, the stigma against fan-like activities prior to the internet meant that quite a few people just wouldn't risk it. You know, you might like comics, but everyone's going to see you going into that comic store. Don't risk it, man. I mean, you're, <laughs> you're, uh, your social status can't take it, right? Everyone's going to know that you were at that concert. Right. Don't, don't do it. Your mom's going to know. Of course, that's not the case, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Your mom doesn't know anything you're doing right now. It's the fact mm -hmm. that, that you can now do all these stigmatized activity without fear of, of societal repercussions. I mean, for better or for worse, right? Obviously, there, there are a lot of negative effects that cause this as well. But it does mean that people now feel free to indulge in a lot of this behavior uh, that beforehand they wouldn't have risked the social censure of having people say, oh, don't do that. That's so, you know, that, that works both good and bad. I mean, societal censure certainly has an important place um, in, in culture. So we see a lot of negative effects of, of that having gone away as well. But for better or for worse, it has supported the formation of fandoms. Seems like, would it be fair to assume that the as the uh, access to internet and entry to, into fandoms was e made easier, then does that kind of correspond to destigmatization of being in fandoms? The gradual destigmatization of some fandoms over the last 20 years, you know, there's so many reasons. It's, it's tough to pinpoint just one, right? You could just as easily say it's the economic cycle of booms and busts that we've been going through for the last 20, 30 years that causes it. You know, people feel much more comfortable falling back on, on childlike habits than maybe they did before. You could make an argument that it's being caused by the rise of baby boomers into, you know, their, their 40s and 50s at the height of their spending power. You know, this generation that was so heavily marketed to in the 80s, well, I guess it's more Generation X now, not baby boomers so much, they're, they're older, but Generation X, the rise of this generation that was uh, marketed to so heavily during the 80s that these brands have become an indelible part of their, of their psyches and their sense of self in a way that that is now of course illegal to do <laughs> to kids one of which of course is just it, it's become cool to be rebellious if fandom is inherently rebellious or at least first wave and second wave fandom thought so then being rebellious has now become safely mainstream uh in fact it's it's even you know almost kind of considered good for you <laughs> to be rebellious right every single uh, Disney movie for the last 15 years has been a, a rebellious heroine who's fighting against societal expectations and it's all about about how uh, following your own path and doing your own thing no matter what society says is, is going to lead to happiness. Doing what your family says, doing what uh, your culture says, your government says, whatever whatever the case may be, it's all about how rebellion leads to happiness and, and we can't help but have 
you know, really, really absorbed <laughs> some of these lessons. I tell people mm-hmm. long enough that, that, you know, they need to explore new ways of being themselves. After a while, they might believe you. So I think that's also probably a, a big part of why people embrace fandoms now uh, like never before. Final question for you is um, your main takeaways after creating this book and getting to understand different fandoms, like what kind of main broader takeaways did you get out of interviewing fans and things like that? And then my second related question is just, does it seem like certain fandoms are, one of the takeaways could be that fandoms have have these core values in common, no matter what you're a fan of, there are certain things you've noticed One of the big, to answer your first question, um, one of the big things that I noticed early on, uh, and and I was looking for it, so it wasn't necessarily unexpected, but whether or not fandom is still stigmatized, there is still an inherent defensiveness that people often have when talking about the things they love. Even things that, that there is no reason to be embarrassed about, things that are very mainstream, uh, I think just the history of fandom has left us with fear of being called a fanatic, right? Being a fanatic is a very negative word. A fan, you know, kind of has a fun connotation now. But a fanatic is, in fact, someone who is um, mentally ill, right? Someone who is no longer thinking logically, someone who could hurt people or themselves. In fact, uh, if we're going back to kind of the Victorian period, the word they used was a musical maniac, Right. Someone who, whose love for music was so intense that it deranged their sensibilities and it was an actual medical diagnosis that, that you, could, you could be uh, put into the care of a doctor for. The history of fandom, perhaps, and the way that it's perceived, at least in the West, uh, I think has left this legacy of defensiveness, of looking for socially acceptable reasons why people like the things that they do. It means that self-reporting often isn't valid when you're trying to talk to people about their fandoms. Often we find the things that we love, we uh, enjoy them, we do fan-like activities around them, but then when someone asks us, why do you like that? We struggle to, to then find a socially acceptable reason, right? That may have nothing to do with why we originally came to our fandom. People may truly believe that they like Star Trek because of its utopian social message. But let's be honest, they probably like it because it's a fun place to dress up and they get to be dudes. Um, And, you know, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with with dressing up in fun costumes and going to conventions where you get to meet dudes. But very few people would admit that. Uh, As an academic, Mm -hmm. it can be be a little um, more uh, of a challenge to kind of tease out the more subtle motivations uh, that really cause people to find the things that they love uh, and then what they're getting out of it. Because uh, everyone's getting something out of it. And you know what? Everything is equally valid and, and there's nothing wrong with that. Now, are there any core values between all fandoms? What different people get out of their fan affiliations is very, very personal. It may be a feeling of community. It may be beating back loneliness, it may be a feeling of power, Uh, it may be uh, a chance at romance, it may be a chance at creativity and a chance to fulfill creative desires, it may be that they're learning new skills because they're part of that fandom, Uh, it may mean that they get to access a part of their personality that they don't get to access otherwise or, or behave in certain ways that they otherwise wouldn't feel comfortable behaving. It could just be that it helps them grow closer to their family or their friend group. And all of these are are completely, totally valid. Even 
you know, people who say that, that a certain fandom got them through difficult periods in their life. We call these the, the tales of miraculous, uh, uh, tales of the miraculous. Um, people who, who the role that their fandom fills is, is that they're going through a rough spot and this fandom was there for them. And these are all equally valid. Uh, so I wouldn't say that there's any one specific motivation which is true across all fandoms, but I do think it's probably fair to say that everyone has a real and completely valid uh, motivation that brings them to their fandom, which is contrary to traditional mainstream societal views of fandom that say these people are crazy, they just like this thing too much. They're not. They have their reasons. And you know what? If those reasons disappeared, they would find another fandom that served them better. That's a good way to put it. It's very um, personalized, but at the end of the day, everyone wants that sort of escape or outlet, and that's ultimately what fandoms do. Big thanks to Zoe Fraud-Blinar for joining me on the show today. She's the co-author of the book Super Fandom, How Our Obsessions Are Changing What We Buy and Who We Are, and the book is out now. It covers everything from classic fandoms like Star Trek fans and Renaissance Fair enthusiasts all the way up to gaming communities and more modern fandoms. It really traces the fandom history in a very all-encompassing, unique way. So if you enjoyed listening to this conversation, I hope you go check out the book. It has stories about Disneyland fans, about Ikea superfans and other brand-specific fans, music fans. It talks about Miku, and you know I love that. Lots of great content there, so go check it out. Thank you all for listening, and thanks again to Zoe for being here.